big sky, big potential. In association with Mills and Reeve, this is Eastern Promise. Achieving more together. The Quadrum Institute on the Norwich Research Park is at the forefront of a new frontier in science, where health, food and innovation all meet. It's a healthcare facility and a clinical research institute into both food and gut health that's solving some of the greatest mysteries posed by the link between what we eat and our physical and mental health. Co-location with the John Innes Centre, the Sainsbury Laboratory and Earlham Institute further facilitates the Quadrum Institute's research and the nearby Food Enterprise Park and Food Innovation Cluster make for an exciting ecosystem in the making. Of course, I wanted to know more, and I wasn't the only one. I invited Dr Tammy Dugan, Life Science and Healthcare Partnership Lead for the University of Cambridge, to come and see the QI, and you'll be joining Tammy and the Quadrum Institute's Head of Public Affairs, Andrew Stronach, on her fact-finding tour of the QI very shortly. First, we sat down for a chat with the director of the Quadrum Institute, Professor Ian Charles, OBE. Okay, so the first thing I noticed when I came in here, I yeah. felt like I was walking into a patient area very yes. much... Um, yeah. It, almost, you know, in, in a hospital, in, yeah. in a very nice hospital. We'll go downstairs and start from the bottom up. And then yeah. you walk up the stairs and yeah. you're in a lab area. Yep. So, yeah, I'd like to just see a bit more how, how this division, you know, is there a division? Does it interact? How does it interact? So we yep. go from the bottom and then... Yeah, let's do that. We can yeah. Yeah, it's something you normally see quite separate, really, isn't it? The, uh, yeah, and I think the, that, the patient face in front the with the lab, of it. and it's the first thing that I noticed when I walked in. Yeah, it's, um, and I think speaking to our scientists, um, particularly the scientists who are based at the old IFR, which was a yeah. sort of 1960s laboratory building, you didn't see the public. But this is a public building, so That's you exactly are reminded the, every the first single thing that day hit me. Yeah. that the science you're doing. Who's it for? Yeah. Yeah. It's for the general public and our patients. So I think it's a really, really nice um, element of what the four partners came up with. The whole, the whole philosophy was, well, let's bring these elements together because that's how science works best. And I think it's really quite powerful. I mean, it's very rare, you know, very rare for patients wandering around into the healthcare setting to actually see labs. Just this close, there. just there, yeah. isn't it? We'll start here, really. Um, the architects wanted to build a building that's like a cell, like an organism. It's got two sides. And within that organism, there's different elements um, from the different partners. So there's 
ourselves, Quadrum Institute of Bioscience, Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital, yep. University of East Anglia, who have researchers who yep. are embedded here. They work here permanently. Okay, I was going to ask about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and, and, and bringing those elements together in terms of research into food, human health, gut microbiome, and the interactions. And increasingly, our links with John Innes Centre and TSL and Erlem Institute. So we have uh, group leaders who are joint appointments. So they work across institutes on different different elements. Okay. So it's kind of built in that kind of, and, that, and that's growing. As I think everybody understands that these are huge problems we're trying to crack, and you're not going to do it as one institute. You're going to have to work with partners to do that. So down here, in the lower ground floor. Almost all of that is the endoscopy unit. So that's, I think, Europe's largest. Um, yeah, it's, it's got to be. It's pretty yeah. impressive in size. It, it's a really interesting thought that when you're up, up on yeah. the upper ground floor, that underneath your feet, yeah. <laughs> there are people who've come in for in, in, sort of yeah. investigations and bowel cancer screening and all the rest of it. Yeah. And as Ian said, it's a really, really useful facility and capability for us to have access to in terms of getting gut samples. And there's a biobank just over the road that's managed by the hospital as well. Okay, brilliant. So functionally, that's part of the hospital. It's managed by the hospital and it's staffed by them. Yeah. Um, Ian's the director of the institute as a whole, um, but obviously clinical management is managed by, by the, the clinical services. Yeah. yeah. And it is a reminder for all of us every day yeah, about why, why we're doing we're what we do. When Ian was having his interview at the corner of my eye, I could see patients coming in. Yeah. And that's the first thing I... You, 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 see, you see it continually, and it's a constant reminder, it isn't is. it? It is. And Ian alluded to it, but I spent ten years as head of comms at the hospital, mm. um, five years as head of comms at the university, and this is the one place I've ever worked where actually all of those elements are circulating in the same building at the same time, and that's really powerful, I think. And I think... Um, patients and carers get it as well. They're, yeah. they're kind of in, we need to do a bit more work around engaging them because for two years, because of COVID, we couldn't. The, the building wasn't open. Yeah. You were coming in for specific reasons. But we're mm. now in a place where we can do that. Any questions was a good example of yeah. bringing the public. And they, they loved it. Over there, you've got the hospital's R&D department. So mm -hmm. from the hospital's on an evolutionary path from having been one of the country's biggest um, district general hospitals to early 2000s, it became a teaching hospital with the formation of the Norwich Medical School at UEA. And it's done a fantastic job of a teaching hospital that trains clinicians and doctors. And the next step of its evolution is to be a teaching hospital that's focused on clinical research as well. Yeah. So that, that, their strategy is to kind of evolve that. Um, and, and that's one of the cultural challenges that we think we can help them do because we understand how research works. Yeah. Um, and they're making that transition from doctors who do service provision to doctors who do service provision and have a clinical research focus as well. So that's part of the mission. Again, this is all public space. Yes. We, had, we had an exhibition running here until fairly recently, which was Norwich University of the Arts students took our science programs and translated them into illustrations and artworks. Right. It was fantastic. They were really good. I mean, they were excellent. I mean, much better than perhaps even I expected. And that's, that was all down that wall. 
So this is a kind of public space where you'll find staff or carers or patients coming in. Clinical research facilities in here. It's part funded by Quadrum, part funded by NHIR, managed by the hospital. And are these, how many beds could you fit? So they've got, they've got some overnight beds en suite, but they're not running any overnight studies at the moment. Okay. They've got a large multifunction treatment bay, which has let's it's about eight, okay. eight beds in there, um, plus DEXA scanners, a lot of studies, quite a lot of studies around orthopedics. Okay. Um, DEXA scanning. They've got their own little lab for working out bloods. Okay, so um, you can do your, your prep Yeah, you can, you can do your prep and a research kitchen. So some of our studies are based around diet and food. When we go upstairs, we'll see there's a research lab up there. So if I give you an example of, you know, George Freeman ate them actually when he visited. Um, <laughs> they're pretzels made from a novel food called which is now a spin-out company called Pulson. It's a chickpea-based flour, oh, okay. but it has a higher, uh, it's higher in fibre and delivers a lower glycemic index. So if you could introduce that kind of flour into mass-produced bread, biscuits, it will have, the hypothesis is that it will have benefits to human health. But you have to try that in people first, <laughs> and that happens in there, so. Oh, fabulous. Um, and similarly with wheat, with one of our researchers, Brittany Hazard, works with the John Innes on um, breeding new kinds of wheat, which again have higher fibre and lower glycemic index. Because <clears throat> I think sort of, somebody told me this recently, was that if you take peas, growers have bred peas for their colour and their sweetness over decades. Um, and at some point in that process, they've also said, People complain that it gives them wind, makes them fart. Can we reduce? Already. Can we reduce the fibre? And then over the years, that's what's happened. So we've reduced fibre in a lot of our vegetables and crops because right. we thought we don't want people getting gas and wind. But actually, what we know, what we know, is that fibre is really, really important for our health. And most people don't eat the recommended daily allowance, which is 30 grams a day, because we bred. We've kind of bred it out of the food chain, and now we're having to reintroduce it. Um, I mean, there's, there's, there's a company we're working with that's looking to develop soft drinks with, that are high in fibre. Oh, really? Yeah, it's an Innovate UK grant. So we are, we are actively looking to reintroduce fibre to our diet because it's really, really important for our health. You know, it's, it's implicated in bowel cancer. It's essential for your microbiome because it's what a lot of the microorganisms feed on. Um, but we've done things like, well, peas are great because they're sweet and they're bright green and they don't make you fart. Right. But they're not that great for your health. Right. So okay. we're having to go back and sort of mother nature. Start again. Yeah. So, oh, some, so those trials can happen in there. Um, so it's a great facility to have that on the doorstep as well. And then if we carry on through, this is a kind of flexible meeting room space. It can either be three separate okay, rooms yeah. or one big room. So when we had any questions, it was one big room. Ah, I was wondering where you put them. Yeah, it was in here. Um, and again, public engagement, patient participation groups. Okay. It's great to have these facilities right next door. And then if we come into the cafe, again, it's a public cafe. Okay. 
And you get a good sense of our kind of co-location with the hospitals. Oh, so that's yeah. the A&E yeah. department yeah. and the helipads. So quite often the ambulance will be, well, most days actually. That's a UEA building, the Bob Champion, which is essentially the medical school, but also the biorepository. And that's a new lab and office building, um, which is named after one of our scientists from the 70s and 80s, LMA Barnes. Um, and I think that's just about to be occupied. Yes, I understand. Is, yeah. Yeah. So you can see how close everything is, which is which is great. And at lunch times, yeah, it is doctors, nurses, scientists, PhD students, patients, carers. It's a yeah. nice mix of people. Especially on a nice day like today, we can sit out on the terrace. Oh, yeah, sit outside. Right. I didn't realise it was also close to get there. Yeah, you I, see. I, for some reason, I just assumed the hospital was further away and UEA was further away. Yeah, it's not really. Just to kind of orientate ourselves, that's the endoscopy unit through okay. there. So we are sort of on the lower ground floor now. Uh -huh. But this side of um, the unit is us. That's microscopy in there. That's Cynthia Whitchurch, one of our group leaders, and Laura Nolan. And Cynthia is, her research interest is biofilms, and she came over from Australia. Oh, okay. So she'd worked with Ian previously. Um, she's an FAA, which is the Australian equivalent of our. Royal Society Fellow, so she's brought her group here. Yeah, Matt Gilmore, who um, was Canada's sort of National Microbiology Lab Director, he came over in the pandemic. Uh, he runs a group here and he also runs um, a new food safety research network for the UK, which is funded by the Food Standards Agency, BBSRC. So it's interesting to see just how much it's kind of brought new, new faces in and new thinking. So that's my cross beam now. Um, and this is one of the amazing things we do here, and we developed it with the Norfolk Norwich University Hospital, is a treatment for specific groups of patients. And the treatment is something called fecal microbiota transplantation. And essentially it's a poo transplant, um, which sounds quite disgusting. But what you're doing is, if uh, the analogy I'd use is um, you're reseeding a lawn. Or, or perhaps a wildflower meadow. So people who've had a lot of antibiotics over the years and that can sort of deplete the microbiome in the gut and then Clostridium difficile likes that, it takes over, can make you very, very ill. Um, and what you need to do is reseed that microbiome. So they get um, fecal material from a healthy person, put it into somebody with that kind of disease and they recover. So we, we've done that um, for, for patients on the NHS. It's a nice approved oh, okay. treatment. So it is a thing. It's a real thing. When you say nice approved treatment, you mean as in the National, National Institute of Clinical Excellence? Yeah. It's nice uh, what, what the National Institute for Clinical Excellence does is say, is say does the, A, does this work? And B, is it value yeah. for money? And the answer is yes, it works. And yes, it's value for money. Um, but because we have to now produce that material in a pharmaceutical standard facility, that's why we're spending this money currently. And it's going to be critically important for our research and for patient care because we're, we're looking to start the UK's only clinical intervention trial for ME patients. Oh, brilliant. Okay, that's really exciting. So that's a trial called yeah. Restore, Restore Me. Um, and that will involve patients with ME either getting placebo or um, FMT. And, and the thinking behind that is that 
what, underlie, what underlies ME might be uh, leaky gut syndrome as a, as a result of post-viral infection. And leaky gut syndrome means the barrier between um, the gut microbiome and the rest of your body isn't working as well as it might do. Um, and we think, Simon Carding, Professor Simon Carding's group, the hypothesis is FMT will help restore that. Um, and there's a huge pent-up demand from people with ME to take part. I could imagine. It's probably... That's interesting. Really, the Department yeah. of Health published an interim plan last week, which we very much welcome, because it recognises that it's been under-researched. Um, and the ME patients have been let down They've, yeah, pretty much the community for, yeah, for a long time. For a long time. I mean, how are you going to manage recruitment onto those trials? Because recruitment, I can imagine it would be pretty yeah, popular. It is very popular. What we've got is um, the study... Hi, James. Um, the study has been developed with um, the NHS and... One of the NHS's only sort of ME services run by East Coast Community Healthcare, which is, a, which is interesting, a community interest company that operates in Great Yarmouth and Lowestoft. Okay. Um, and they deliver an ME service, so they have a pool of patients who live relatively local to us, because obviously there are issues about those patients may not be able to travel far. Yeah, yeah. So they have 100 patients who are ready, willing and able to take part. We just need to get this finished and signed off, and we're ready to roll. That must be a really, you know, really welcomed. Yeah, local, I think there's a lot of interest in it. And a lot of people really desperate for kind of some yeah. solutions. And we, we hope we can provide some of the answers in due course. One of the things I often forget to mention, I shouldn't, is that just down the end there, and that's kind of stores and loading bay, but it's also um, very, very cold freezers and the cryogenic freezers. Uh, we're home to the National Collection of Yeast. Cultures. Yes. Ah, that is. Yeah, so that's a historical thing which we've retained. So brewers and bakers, and if they want, they're looking for sort of heritage yeasts, lives here. We have a... Uh, a sort of commercial arm QIB extra and they can okay. sit within that because it's more kind of consultancy based. Mm. Yeah, that ME study is not funded by the government either, it's charitably okay. funded. I could imagine, okay. Because it's been very hard to get any kind of MRC or BBS funding. Is that yeah. mainly due to um, supply other priorities or the use on That's really hard to answer that because, of course, they, the research councils would say, well, you know, if it's a strong enough proposal, we'd fund it. Um, but I think there is a view that research councils have not really regarded it Priority disease yeah, as a disease. To, but, yeah. um, I think, it, I mean, the stats is interesting because Simon thinks that some aspects of long COVID will be quite similar to me. Yeah, I did. That's, that's what I was wondering yeah. whether you, um, it, you know, post pandemic, the long COVID yeah. patients would be yeah. and considered I, for these studies. And I think, for example, he has put in a grant yeah. along those lines and it wasn't successful. Um, but what was really interesting to me was that yesterday the, the ONS stats around long term illness in the UK yes. phenomenally high. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think it probably does need looking at.
two floors of labs, and broadly speaking, this floor is kind of our um, institute strategic program, which is called Food, Microbiome and Health, so the kind of food innovation stuff. Big, big focus for that one is things like micronutrients. We know as we move towards that plant-based diet. Yes, yeah, I've read about so that. So vitamin yeah. B12, iron. We're running um, a study at the moment called the Harvest Study, and that's recruiting women um, of childbearing age who are vegetarians or vegans just to understand about their iron levels and what they each get is um, a hydroponic kitchen garden um, with salad greens that are um, biofortified with iron and then obviously they come into the CRF and we look at physiologically is that working uh, is the bioavailability bio of iron there are they retaining it so that study's happening right now. So that's one of the examples where we're working on that kind of next challenge. About for the sustainability of the planet, we need to eat less meat. But what are some of the implications of that? Yeah. And the nutritional value of the plant-based food, I suppose you yeah. have to look at as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the, you know, it's one of those things about people, you can see plant-based food in supermarkets being heavily marketed as healthy options. But if it's ultra-processed and full of sh salt, and it's not actually going to be no. that good for you either. Um, although we're largely funded by BBSRC, we also do quite a lot of charitable funding in terms of research. So I mentioned the Restore Me trial. That's funded by Invest in ME Research, which is a charity. The Big C, which is Norfolk and Suffolk's cancer charity, Breast Cancer Now, Bell Cancer UK. A lot of work with the Gates Foundation. Yes, that's all. Yeah, and that's uh, that's focused uh, on Salmonella typhi, um, places like Zimbabwe, Fiji, Bangladesh. Uh, it's the genomic sequencing element that we bring oh, to that. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, it's understanding what's yeah. happening with those places. Yeah. Yeah. Is it Danish government or Danish uh, scientific? Uh, yeah, lots of different. Yeah, I mean, we've certainly done stuff with the Norwegian government. The Danish ah. government yeah. Um, Actually, yeah. that one stood out when I saw the logo. Um, there's also MOD-based stuff um, we're involved with. So again, Simon Carding's group. And I'm going to talk about poo transplants again. I'm really sorry if anybody's eating their lunch um, or about to. And that's with it's a trigger warning. Term. It's a trigger warning. Poo poo transplant alert. Um, there's a cohort of um, Santar Stoffser cadets who are very kindly donating stool samples to us to study what the effects of military training are on them, oh, okay. on their, health, their general health. So that's that something that the MOD is interested in. You know, what, what, what does training do to people's physical resilience and physical and mental well-being? How can we track that? Yeah, and it's nice. I also think it's nice that you can see into the labs, but you can see the rest of the institute as well. Kind of that. It's not a two-way mirror, it's just one, one window. Yes, the whole but, way but through. Yeah. And the rest of the park as well. So, yeah, one of our capabilities is containment labs, and this is CL3. So that's why you've got you can negative pressure and you see CCTV monitoring. <coughs> and obviously this is for the higher-level pathogens yeah. we work on. So botulinum would be one. Um, e. coli 127. Covid, back yeah. in the day. Um, it's just kind of critical resource for us to have. Yeah. Uh, and that's down there. Mm. 
model colon is next door. Oh. So. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. So we have a variety of different models, ranging from gut on chip that we've developed, but there is the in vitro model as well, yeah. which is used um, quite extensively, although not today. It looks like, for listeners, a, a, a range of, um, sort of glass glass cylinders, glass jars with a huge amount of pipes Jeez. going between them yep. up, up to the up to the various sort of sockets. And, Plugs on, on the, uh, the bank of instruments above. That's it's it's quite uh, intimidating slash impressive. Yeah, and it's what traditionally I think if, if 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 you ask people what does a science laboratory look like, this room would be exactly like that. that. Yeah. There's lots the of vision in everyone's head. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's that's an important capability for us. It gets used a lot. Um, but it does these days go down to gut on chip. So yeah. Um, yes, and I think um, <laughs> this is the only place I've ever worked when I started. A couple of weeks after I'd started, it was an all staff email, and it said, "If anybody's interested in becoming a poo donor, <laughs> please contact Lee on whatever extension it was." And I thought, "This is going to be interesting." <laughs> but yeah, because that's that's not. Sort of email you, you know. I, I would normally get on my first first uh, few days. No, it's not. Drive. No, it's not. And no. it's um, yeah. But it's, you know, they need it for a variety of reasons. Yeah. They need it for, well, we talked about the treatment, the FMT treatment. Um, and it's probably worth talking a bit about what happens with that. Um, you have to be between, I think, the ages of twenty and forty. Oh shit. Quite young. Uh, you have to be healthy. And then the poo is screened for every known pathogen before it, anything happens to it. Um, and then it might be used in patient care or it might be used in model colon or something else. Right. So, yeah. I just wonder where you got your healthy volunteers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> in-house in is the answer. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Do you also go into the community for healthy volunteers for any of the studies? Or? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the studies, I mean, I, they're kind of the real heroes of research, yeah. actually, yeah. the people who take part in the trials. So the Harvest study, you know, we're busy recruiting women of a certain age to that one. Um, we've got the Diamond study, which is looking at the links between the gut and dementia. Okay. So we're actively recruiting to that one at the moment. We have another one, which is called the Parallel Motion study, which is a really interesting one, looking at um, intergenerational gut microbiome. Okay. So we're recruiting three generations from a family. They don't need to be living in the same house. They can be in different locations. But we want to look at each of those generations' gut microbiome to see what are the differences, and what are the similarities, and why might they be different or the similar. difference in the environment have altered yeah. that microbes. Um, and it builds on what we've done previously um, called the Parallel Study, which was looking specifically at um, newborn babies, mums. Mm -hmm. So this is an evolution from oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, CRC funded. But yeah, so none of that is possible without members of the public who are willing to do that mm -hmm. pro bono, um, just to further our understanding of how yeah. our bodies work. Very important, very important yeah. aspect. Um, more restricted lab space because mm -hmm. uh, we work on the stereomonocytogenes, which is a foodborne pathogen, um, particularly an issue if you might be pregnant or immunocompromised. 
listeriosis, the disease it causes, the mortality is about 30%. So we think of food poisoning as being something relatively benign. Yeah, but actually, yeah, and, and normally it is. But there are, yeah, you know, there are pathogens in the food chain that can cause really serious problems, and that's one of them. So we're sort of we're walking away from higher level pathogens down, down to lower to level, level pathogens. Here we are very much in the microbe area. Yeah, we are. My wife's doing a PhD at the moment. She's a, she's an emergency medicine doctor, and she's her research interest is traumatic brain injury and trauma, so trauma oh, okay. and coagulopathy. So what happened? Why why do some people clot and some people don't oh, clot? Oh, fascinating. Okay. But she's based at the Blizzard Institute in London. She's been around. So your labs are better than our labs. Yeah. Sequencing room. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Patrick Valance came in February and formally opened the building. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and one of the things he was in. So this is where all the sequencing work for COVID was done. And you know that, from your point of view, Mike, that small silvery grey machine yes. plugged in. That that sequences. That's a minion. So what Patrick was struck by was you know in back in the day, it would have been a huge room. Huge room, room full of secrets. And now it's what looks like a flash drive. You know, what I use just to plug in microphones is is about more comparable to the size of um, the, the, the device behind it. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's a very swift-looking computer. And if I thought I could get it out of the building, I would probably have it away. But, um, as well. I, I bet. But for, for those those who obviously can't see this, it's about half the size. This little winking, Yep. Grey silver box that Andrew mentions, it's about half the size of a mouse. Yeah, that's right. It's yeah. really quite small. Yeah. And what, the really exciting development for us and for science generally is that evolution. So, um, further down the corridor, we've got commercial lab space. And then that commercial lab space is a group from Oxford Nanopore. Oh, okay, who yeah. Make, make, this, yeah who make, make these. But what, what they've done is Justin O'Grady, who was a group leader here, and led our work on COVID sequencing, was enticed away by Oxford Nanopore. But he said, I don't want to leave Norwich. And I said, that's fine. So they're based at the Quadrum. And we've licensed some of our IP that the World Health Organization has just endorsed in terms of um, sequencing drug-resistant TB. OK, yeah. That it's effective and that it works. And why is that important? because drug-resistant TB is a growing problem globally. Um, traditionally, clinicians have to wait for sputum samples to be cultured before they know what they're dealing with, and that can take days or weeks. But with this kind of technology, sequencing technology, that takes five hours. So wow. you're giving clinicians the information they need within hours so they can target the right drugs and therapies. Real-time patient care. Real-time point-of-care yeah. diagnostics. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're still at the beginning of this, but who, who have just endorsed that? And that some of that science came from here. So for us, that's incredibly exciting. I bet. And for Oxford Manipur, even more exciting. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so they're based down there. Excellent. We liked him so much, we bought him a lab. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's certainly uh, academia industry. <clears throat> Relation, yeah, it going is. on. Yeah. 
So yeah, that's that sort of little stop tour. Thank you. That's very amazing. Much. Really interesting. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll ask you for your your opinions when Andrew's not listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So because yeah. I think that would yeah. that would that be wouldn't cool be fair. Yeah, yeah, would be, yeah. Andrew Stronach, head of public affairs for the Cordwell Institute. I say it like that because it's for the audio. Thank you ever so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to see it for the second time. Still as absolutely as amazing as the first time. Great. Tammy Dugan from the University of Cambridge Lead Health uh, Life Science uh, Healthcare Partnerships. Thank you for <laughs> reminding. Thank you for joining us on that talk. No, it's and, been uh, amazing. Thank you for inviting me along. It's my absolute pleasure. It's been a pleasure, Mike. Thanks very much. Thank you. So, with the tour over, let's hear what Tammy made of the Quadrum Institute and her impressions of the wider Norwich Research Park. Tammy Dugan, we are now sat outside the gleaming Quadrum Institute. Uh, they can't hear us now. So, what did you make of that then? Oh, it was, it was really, really fantastic. The first thing that struck me, as I said, when I walked in, the first thing you notice are the patients on the ground floor. Yeah. And then you can see up to the side, and you can see lab space. And it's that interaction between patient care and real research that, re that I found really impressive. And then to find out the quadrant was because of the four institutes actually merged together, it was really impressive. It, it's um, it's probably more than I expected it to be in the terms of uh, I didn't quite realise um, the scale of the um, the scale of the institute. Firstly and secondly, just how how large the patient reach was with the largest uh, endoscopy suite in Europe. So that did take me back yeah. a bit. Yeah. So I mean, in terms of how knowledge of this place can will I, mean, I don't expect you to make uh, University of Cambridge policy on the fly but how will knowledge of this place factor into what you do um, it's the I mean it's it we're so close we're just down the a11 yes and this huge um, area of microbiome and food research that and uh, the patient care that is so close to us but really into what interentwined um, research areas that would be really beneficial for from Cambridge to to Norwich it's it's really important to strengthen the ties between the areas I, I think yeah so, so how can Eastern Promise the slightly self-serving question how can Eastern Promise help you do that and how can we work on that as uh, people who sort of care about the science that's done in our region and, and want to see it succeed on a global level and, and do good for humanity broadly. Um, just to highlight a bit more of what's actually done here and what is here, I, I didn't realise the extent of the microbiome work that was carried out here. I didn't realise that, as I said before, the endoscopy suite was actually as large as it was. Just the cutting-edge research that's going on here, it's amazing. And uh, I don't feel, unless I'd actually looked myself and tried to find out what was going on, I would, I'd have found out, because it's not a Cambridge Institute from where I am, in the yeah. sense that it's in our area, but because it's a separate, um, it's classed as a separate university and a separate institute, it, it, it's not something we hear about as much. No. And I think it's a shame because it's a really, really fascinating um, institute. I'm actually sitting outside it now, just still really 
impressed with uh, not just the physical appearance and you know of the institute but what goes on in here well I'm really really thrilled that you're going to take away such a good impression to share what you've you've found what you've seen and it's, it's a real been a real pleasure to have to have you with us today I I, I love it when other people get I'm their really, voices I'm really, on the podcast. really really enjoyed it My huge thanks to Professor Ian Charles OBE, to Andrew Stronach, and especially to Dr. Tammy Dugan of Cambridge University for coming along with an open mind and for seeing not only the potential of the Quadrum Institute and the Norwich Research Park, but also that we still have a job of work to do in improving the links between Cambridge and Norwich, our region's two centres of science, which are complementary, not competitors. Eastern Promise relishes the challenge, and we're here to do exactly that. To listen to more episodes of the Eastern Promise podcast and find out more about what we do, please visit easternpromise.org.uk. Eastern Promise is a Priors Croft production in association with Mills and Reeve. Achieving more together.